Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by ProServe PR Marketing, a Chicago public relations and marketing firm with legal practice areas covering family law, litigation, and intellectual property. Please show your support for our programming by visiting and clicking the like button on our social media pages. First, we have the Law Talk Radio Facebook page, and second, the ProServe PR Marketing and Litigation page. You can listen to any of our episodes on demand, and you can find those episode links on the media releases we publish for each episode. You can visit ProServePR.com and use the embedded radio show player on our Law Talk Radio page. Check out some of our recent links and articles while you listen. Support for Law Talk Radio comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today's title is Special Needs Planning for Children with Pamela Parker. Parents of special needs kids know they need more than good doctors and therapists to set a stage for a great and safe future for their kids. With attorney Pam Parker's experienced and compassionate approach to solving the toughest worries parents face, what will happen to my child when I'm gone, parents can actively take control of their child's future and let go of the worry. Pamela Parker practices, in, practices law in Austin, Texas, focusing on helping families with special needs children plan a safe and secure future for that child. With over 20 years of legal experience and two special needs children of her own, Pam is well equipped to solve the problems and ease the worries that parents face. She speaks and gives workshops to educate parents that can, they can build a safe future for their kids even after they, the parents, are gone. A website where you can find out more for Pamela Parker is parkercouncil.com, and that's P-A-R-K-E-R-C-O-U-N-S-E-L.com. We do welcome callers to our program. Callers are welcome to dial in at 917-889-9732. Press option 1 to be placed in our caller queue. That number again is 917-889-9732. By general disclaimer, this is a general information and entertainment program, and the advice shared on our show does not constitute legal advice. Communications with licensed attorneys on our program does not control or create attorney-client relationships. Further, ProServe PR marketing does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests all callers are confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved. Now, some topics we're going to cover on today's show. We'll talk in segment one about a comprehensive plan to take care of your child in the future needs to cover these areas, in three areas. Um, next, in our second segment, we'll talk about creating a community of caregivers providing security for your child. Then in our third segment, we'll talk about ensuring financing for care in the future centers around protecting eligibility for government benefits. Uh, fourth, we'll say, talk about parents and how they can prepare for a continuity of caring for their child. All right. Um, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Pamela Parker. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm pleased to be here and be able to talk with your with your audience. Well, I'm appreciative that uh, you carved out your time to share uh, some of these very important uh, important roles and uh, different plans and things that uh, go on. So um, let's dive right into uh, what you have to tell us about a comprehensive plan to take care of your child in the future and uh, three areas that we should focus on. Okay, great. I will tell you, I started out early in my practice doing employment law for school teachers. And as part of that, I did a lot of special education work. So I had exposure to the disability community early, even before I was doing this in particular. And after I was doing that practice, 
I started having children, and one of my children was born with um, cerebral palsy. And so I suddenly had a special needs child that I was now, as a parent, in the special education system. And it was really interesting to me to see the system from two sides, because I had been working with educators about special ed, and then I had been going in as a parent to talk about these issues and to talk to doctors about these issues. And while the information was more or less the same that I needed to know, the perspective was very different. And so one of the things that I've been able to bring to my practice now, talking with parents about planning for the future, is really an intense understanding of what it is that that they're worried about and what they're trying to do. And also, in part, knowing, because I've been through this, knowing that the parents don't really know what they can do. They don't know that there are things out there to alleviate the things they worry about. And the number one thing I think that parents with severely disabled children worry about is what's going to happen when the parent isn't there anymore. You know, who who is going to love my child as much as I do and take care of them the way that I want them to? And how am I going to have enough money to take care of them for their entire life, which is going to be, if all goes well, far beyond my own life. So it's a pretty intensely emotional experience to go through this. And I do a lot of education of parents to get them to understand and be aware of the things that they can do that they normally don't talk about. You know, when you have a child with disability, you get thrown into the the therapy and the doctor system and you learn about, you know, treatments and therapies and there's always something else that you can do in that vein. But it's very seldom that people talk about the planning for care that's needed here. So this comprehensive plan that I talk about takes into account different areas of their life, and we use legal documents to, to put in place the ideas and the, and the wishes that parents have for their kids. So the number one thing, really, to taking care of a child is to have somebody who's taking care of them. So we talk about how to provide caregivers. And I say caregivers with a plural because you don't want just a guardian. You want a community of people that are going to be watching out for and helping your child. And they're not all going to be direct caregivers. Some of those are just going to be eyes and ears to look for resources, to look for things that will help your child that um, that are useful to the people that are making the direct day-to-day decisions, but they don't necessarily have time to do everything. And if you think about your role as a parent, you know that you depend on other people to give you information and to identify things that your child might need or might do and to help. You know, you have family members, you have community members, you have other people involved. And when you have a special needs child, situation is the same. You still need more than one person. So we talk about how to build a community of people that are going to help care for your child. And then we also talk about financing because, of course, the child has to have something to live on. And generally, government benefits, which are available for people with severe disabilities, provide only a very basic level of care. They're sort of the safety net. They provide they provide um, uh, the basics, you know, food, shelter, and clothing, and some medical care, but really only the basics. And so as a parent, there are ways to provide additional money, like you would for any other child, to help care for, for your child. But unlike your other children that don't have disabilities, you have to do it in a really very particular way in order to be able to 
safeguard the government benefits, which are very critical for your child to to have throughout their lifetime, but still provide enough money so that there is a higher quality of living, the kind of quality of living that you are wanting to give them while you're alive and available. So we talk about things with regard to that. And then we talk about how to actually provide an ongoing continuity of the type of care that your child is used to. As you transition from one primary caregiver to another, i.e. when the parent is no longer able to care for their child, either because they have simply become too old and disabled or because they pass away, and you transition to another person, you want that child to have more or less the same kind of life, the same kind of living arrangement, the same kind of philosophy of care that he was receiving prior with from the parents. And so we talk about ways to provide that information to the future people who you may not know and you may not know who they're going to be, particularly if your child lives far beyond your own lifetime. But there are ways to put into place information and guidelines to carry out the parent's philosophy of caregiving and the parent's love, really, is what that is, throughout the child's lifetime. So we include that as well because that provides guidance to the people that are handling the finances and are, prov- and are handling the actual day-to-day caregiving of the child. So those are really the three big areas. Now, I have a question. How much – so your practice sounds uh... – transactional, do you work with and deal with uh, matters in the probate courts as well? I don't at this time actually do the probate. Um, part of the planning for the parents is to do estate planning. That's that's necessary to make sure that the financing is properly set up. But I don't handle probate. Um, I do handle guardianships. Um, I handle some matters with regard to Social Security, um, supplemental Security, insurance, SSI, and Medicaid issues. I handle special education, you know, and a variety of of miscellaneous things that come up. And some of those are around um, parents who are divorced and have special needs children because there are things that usually really are overlooked in the child support settlements with regard to care for that child. And so sometimes I consult on those. Sometimes I um, deal with modifications um, to handle some things that, most family law attorneys don't even think about when mm-hmm. they're doing divorces for parents that have these special needs kids. Right. Um, and now I'm, I'm assuming that the you know with working and preparing documents to uh, care for all these um, that it's a rather uh, complex process. Um, or how 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 long how much is involved for a parent with a special needs child as far as doing uh, the work that you do with them? The kind of plan that I just talked about. Generally, you know, it can be done very quickly if there are things that the parents have been thinking about all along. But the way that I practice is I kind of take them through the thinking process because most of them have thought about it some, but not comprehensively because they get scared. Basically, they get overwhelmed by the issues and they just sort of stop. It's the same reason I think that a lot of people know that they should have a will, but most people don't. It's just a really emotionally difficult area to deal with. And so I take them through ways to think about how to choose um, 
caregivers for your child, how to choose the people that are going to manage money, how you want your child to live, what are the kinds of things that you think about when you make decisions with regard to medical care and living arrangements and and information that will help guide people in the future. So if the parents have thought about these issues, the process can be done in a few weeks. Um, for most people, it takes a few months to mm-hmm. get all of this in place. Now, is there an ongoing component, um, uh, updates and such? As with any estate plan, you need to review that periodically because circumstances change throughout your life. So every year to two years, you want to take a look at your will, certainly in the estate plan that you have, and make sure that it still fits your life and your circumstances. And also things change with your child, particularly when the family is doing this planning when the child is young, which is really when, you know, that's the ideal time to do it so that, you know, they don't fall through the cracks if something happens to the parents when they're young. But if you've done a plan for your child when they're pretty young, developmentally things may change drastically, and particularly with some types of disabilities, autism, for example, which is a huge issue in this country right now because the numbers of of children diagnosed with autism are growing so exponentially. We have a lot of children that fall into that diagnosis that are going to need assistance well into their adulthood. But with autism and similar kinds of disabilities, it's really hard to know early on what the functional level of the child is going to be as they hit, you know, adulthood when they're 18, when they're 25, when they're 35. Um, For kids with developmental delays, they continue to learn and develop well past the time that most adults do. And so while at 30 they may not be able to take care of themselves, at 40 they may be able to do many more things. So the plan that you have for your child as well needs to be reviewed periodically. And one of the things that that I really emphasize to parents is that whatever you decide today that you think is right can be changed later on if you need it to change because it absolutely is intended to take care of your child as 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 the child needs to be taken care of. It's not set in stone. It's not if you do it early, that doesn't mean you're stuck with it. You can change it and modify it over the years as things need to be changed and modified. Mm-hmm. Now, I suppose that we're, and we'll probably get into this a little bit uh, further into the show, but I'm assuming that there are people you work with who have children and special needs that range from uh, different levels of uh, functionality. So school may be a common issue. Do you work with uh, with schools as well and handle those issues? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are certainly um, issues with regard to providing services in the schools that I do work with families on and um, sometimes even in the in the you know after school and vocational training and in work situations for some of the kids that are working that are actually working either in a regular job that's modified or in a sheltered workshop kind of situation uh, those you know in any setting that the child is in there may be issues that come up where um, some good legal advice or some good legal assistance can can be of benefit. I would agree very much so. So this is a very interesting topic, and we're going to be right back after our first short break. I want to uh, tell our audience about an upcoming event 
this summer. Uh, all This is an event for attorneys and legal investigators as well. This summer here in Chicago at the Hotel Avenue Crown Plaza, on June 7th through June 9th, the National Association of Legal Investigators holds its national conference to celebrate Nally's 45th anniversary. Presenters at this event include Cynthia Hetherington, Nick Augustine, Andrea Lyon, Todd Throne, Judd Stone, and representatives from Dynamic Safety LLC, as well as Reed and Associates. Attorneys are encouraged to attend this event, and as always, the presenters for this NALI conference are the best of the best in their field, and you will learn new information that you can take home and put to use immediately. The presentations are balanced with criminal, civil, and general litigation issues to best educate all attending NALI members and the attorneys who are learning more about working with NALI certified investigators. Public defender colleagues, paralegals, and attorneys are encouraged to attend this event. If you'd like more information, please direct your inquiries to the Office for NALI, the National Association of Legal Investigators, at area code 517-372-1500. That number again is 517-372-1500. All right, now back to our show. We're talking with Pamela Parker, and in our first segment, we talked about the comprehensive plan to take care of a child with future needs, talking about caregivers, financing, and continuity of care. Now in our second episode, we're going to talk about creating a community of caregivers providing security for the child. Pamela? An issue that every parent has to deal with if they go, uh, parents of young children, when they go to write their will is, who's going to take care of my child if I die tomorrow? And my child is still a minor. And that's true for parents with special needs kids as well. But parents with special needs kids also need to think about basically guardianship or conservatorship after the child turns 18 as well. But they're, but they're really two different concepts. So on the one hand, if the child is under 18, we talk to parents about coming up with a person that they would want to take care of their child if, if they can't and the child is still young. Those designations then go to the court if, in case they're, you know, in the event that they're needed. They go to the court. The court makes a decision usually to follow the parent's wishes, but they will review the person that was named and and recommended and and see if they're actually fit at that moment in time to take care of the child. So when you have a child under 18, you need to designate someone for care if you're not there. When the child turns 18, at that point they're legally considered an adult and all of the rights that the parents had transferred to the child. For children with disabilities, this is a really, really significant moment in time because if the child is not able to make decisions for themselves and to care for themselves, someone else needs to do it. But the parent does not continue to have the right to do that. So educational information, records that the school has, special education committees that make decisions for the child, grades, everything to do with the education is no longer legally available to the parent just because they're the parent. Medical information is the same way. Doctors, hospitals, insurance companies no longer by law can provide that medical information, what's considered private medical information, to a parent just because they're the parent, because the parent no longer has any legal right to 
to that. It's considered private and belongs to the individual who's 18. Even if the individual who's 18 doesn't have the capacity to do anything with that information. If the child can give permission for the educational officials or the medical officials to talk to their parents, and the child will give that permission, then they continue to do that. But it is not automatic, and that really surprises a lot of parents when their kid hits 18. So a guardianship needs to be considered if your child clearly is not going to be able to take care of themselves and make good decisions on their own. When your child is 17 is when you need to start thinking about this. Whether or not your child qualifies for a guardianship, or in some states it's called conservatorship, and that's a process of going to court, showing the court, usually through a doctor's certification, that this child is not competent, legally competent, to care for themselves, and the court should appoint someone to to be in charge of that child, basically like a parent, but it's not a parent at that point, although the guardianship can go to a parent. But you have to go to court to do this. And until you do that and get that guardianship or conservatorship order, the parent on the day that child turns 18 doesn't have automatic access to that information and doesn't have the automatic right to make decisions and give permission for medical or educational decisions. So at 17, those issues need to be need to be dealt with, and you start by talking to your doctor. I mean, for some children, it's, it's very clear that a guardianship or conservatorship would be appropriate. For other children, it's not so clear. They may be rather high-functioning, although naive and not developed to the point where other 18-year-olds are, but it may not be absolutely clear whether or not a guardianship is appropriate because it's a legal standard. It's not just my child needs help and makes silly decisions. If that were the case, then nobody would turn their child loose at 18, don't you think? <laughs> yep. So you start by talking to your doctor and say, would you recommend that this child need a guardian? Because it is the doctor's information that is the primary source of, of um uh, primary source that the courts will look at. And if there's any question, there may be other people that can be called in to kind of decide and let the court decide if it's appropriate. It's a really big deal in most cases to take away a, re- a person's right to take care of themselves. And one of the things that um, parents run up against sometimes in, in seeking guardianship for their 18-year-old is that the laws were mostly written to protect elderly adults who are losing their capacity to take care of themselves. So it, there's a very detailed process in almost every state that these um, applications go through to really make sure that the person needs someone to be in this position and not just take away their rights. But it's done the same way most of the time for children uh, with developmental delays as it is for elderly adults. So sometimes there's more information than is really needed that you have to give to the court, but it still goes through that process. But then there may be children that that really don't legally qualify for a guardianship for because when you do guardianship and this is this is important to know it's not just that the court will give someone the right to make those decisions for the child and to get access to information so they can make it. It also takes away the child's right to do those things. So if a guardian or conservative is appointed, not only is someone else given that right, but the child no longer has it at all. 
So it's it's a significant deprivation of rights from a legal standpoint. If the child is not legally qualified for guardianship but clearly needs assistance, which is the case for many high-functioning um, children with, with developmental disabilities, there are other things that can be done to allow parent or another appropriate person to help that child. The, um, they generally require the child to be cooperative, which can sometimes be an issue. So we look at if guardianship is inappropriate, we look at having the child sign blanket powers of attorney, blanket medical releases, blanket educational releases, assigning you know their permission to someone or some several people to get access to information and to conduct business on their behalf. And if the child is cooperative and knows that they need help or knows that they want help and will under, can understand and sign these documents, that can provide a way for parents to come in and, and make sure that their child has assistance. Unlike a guardianship, it doesn't also take away the child's right. So while the child may sign these documents and give permission to the parent or, or another person to make decisions and to help them make their own decisions, they can still go out and make decisions on their own. So you do need to be aware of that if you've got a child in that situation. They can still go and sign a contract to buy <laughs> to buy a Ferrari if they decide to do that. And you don't necessarily have the right to, um, you know, just get that contract voided. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that you need to think about. But then there are other um, methods that can be set up to manage money. Because a lot of times I find that... Um, children with, with these developmental disabilities that are considered competent to make decisions and therefore don't need guardianship, they're still rather naive or very vulnerable to influence um, in terms of their decision-making. And where that usually leads to big problems is in the management of money. If they are um, vulnerable to being taken advantage of, they may wind up without any money at the end of the month because they generously gave it to all the people that paraded by their door saying that they needed some money. So one of the things that parents can do is look at how to help manage that money in ways that limit the child's access to it um, while still giving them whatever freedom that they that they need to manage, you know, what they can, but safeguarding it. So you can have the child's money put into special accounts. You can have a bookkeeper designated to actually handle bills and money transactions, and and you can have joint accounts where the parent or other appropriate person actually handles the money, but the child still has access to it. So it's very, very individualized to look at how best to set up the different vehicles to assist um, an individual, an adult individual who doesn't legally need guardianship but definitely needs assistance. And it's very individual looking at what that child and I say child because we're talking about the children of the parents, which is usually who I work with. But they may be adults. They may be, you know, in their 30s and 40s, the individual with a disability. So, but we look at that individual's particular circumstances, their particular needs, their particular strengths, and we figure out the best way to help them without just taking over for them. And so these, can be, these alternatives to guardianship can take a lot of different directions and we do spend some time talking with the parents about how to how to handle those things. You do have to have the cooperation usually of the individual 
um, for a lot of these things that they, you know, agree to let the the parent or whoever their designee is to do the the help with these things. But they're very, very effective for for most people. Now, with I, I really appreciate some of the points about giving and receiving input. Um, what are some misconceptions out there or challenges that you've seen with people trying to uh, decide, um, you know, what level of decision-making uh, the child, the special needs child has? I guess where this becomes an issue is when things evolve. And this is what we were talking about in the earlier segment, the need to review and, and update things periodically. When, when we set up a plan for, for a child that works and the child's circumstances change, either because they gain more ability or because they are making more money so they have more to deal with or because they've moved and they're around a different set of friends or acquaintances who may have a different type of influence on them, or they change jobs where there's different responsibility levels that they have to deal with, or they move to a different um, living arrangement where they are either more or less responsible for bill payment and um, decisions about purchases and things like that. When those circumstances change is where there's really um, the possibility of things to go awry if it's not considered beforehand. When when the circumstances of the child change, and really that for for people with with these developmental disabilities that that includes just when the people around them change all there always needs to be an examination of whether the vehicles that are set up to assist them are still going to work or if they need to be modified and so that's a really critical time to be looking at things um you mentioned input and when we talk about this community of caregivers, something that's really critical for parents to know and to take the initiative to do is to ensure that a number of people in that child's life know that they are welcome to be involved in the child's life. Because if you've got, particularly if you've got a child with a guardian, that person is legally the person that's responsible for caring for the child and making sure that they're cared for. But that's just one person. So you want to find a way, and we talk about this with parents, depending on you know who's in their life and what their particular um, setup is. But you want to find other people in, in your child's life that are interested in your child and encourage them to stay involved. So that can include... Um, that can include people from all kinds of different areas. It may include support staff at your child's doctor's office. It may include a teacher. It may include um, a classmate um, that was really um, taken with your child. I know at my my son's school, they have a program. He's still in high school. Um, they have a program there where they uh, called PAL, Peer assisted leadership or something, I forget what it stands for, but they take children in the regular mainstream classes and they come into the life skills classes, which are the, the classes that have the most disabled of the children with special needs, and they pair them up and they do activities with them and they take them into the community and into the school community, into the other um, activities with 
peers that are, you know, integrated into that. And in those programs, a lot of times you find kids that are the same age as your child that are peers that are really, really interested and really like your child. And you want to find a way to keep that person involved. And you want to encourage them to give input into the care of your child. And then you also want to encourage the guardian, um, whoever that may be or whoever it may be in the future, to know that they should seek out this input and that they should listen and that they should take it into account. Because if your child has more friends, whether they're, you know, the kind of friends that sit down and, and do things with them or just friends that are interested in them, you have a few different things going on. You have more people that can do things with with your child, you know, that can can either do leisure activities in whatever their living setting is or that can take them places and can take them to the movies or take them to the store. So your child gets to do more things because there are more people involved in their life. You have more people from different perspectives that may come up with things that your child might like to do that any one person might not actually, you know, be aware of. So people that you have in the medical community may may find out about some program that they think would be beneficial for your child and pass that information on to the guardian who can make a decision about whether or not to use it. Or there may be, you know, a, a, a peer-aged person that remembers that your child used to like you know, basketball when they were in high school and they and they find out that there's a basketball league for people with disabilities and they go and they tell the guardian that, oh, there's this basketball league and so-and-so might like to enjoy it. So you just have more people who are seeing things out in the community that might be of interest to your child. So it enriches the available resources for your child to get into and helps the guardian to find out about these things because one person isn't going to be aware of everything. And then it also... This is very important to, to parents, I find. It increases the security of your child because the more eyes that are looking at your child, the less likelihood that something is going to slip through the cracks. There's always a fear that, you know, what I hear from parents over and over um, is the thing that they most do not want for their child in the future is to be warehoused in some anonymous government facility. And if you have a lot of people around your child looking at what's going on and interested in your child, the possibility of people not paying attention drops dramatically because someone's going to notice if things are going to be missed. And so it increases the parent's security and the security of the individual to have just more people around. And if things are not being managed properly, somebody is going to be there to notice it. So it's really important to set this up. And we talk about different ways to keep people involved because you have to you have to encourage the communication. You have to encourage that ongoing setup. So you know you can look at um, you know making sure that the contact information for these various people is included. I think now that probably Facebook pages would be great for, for a lot of individuals because you can have whoever is involved and interested in your child can be on a, an information group and find out what's going on and, and give whatever their input is. Um, but you have to actively create this permission for the guardian to hear it and for these individuals because a lot of times you have people that are very interested in your child, but they 
they're not officially designated as anything and they don't want to interfere or they don't think it's their place and they don't say anything. They don't go visit the child. They don't, you know, they don't ask about the child. So you have to actively tell people that not only is it okay for you to do this, but I want you to do this. It's, I'm, I'm giving you permission to stay involved in my child's life. And then you go and you tell the guardian um, and how you do that depends on what the setup is, but you go and tell the guardian, you go and tell the trustee, I'm telling you that I've told these people to pay attention to my child and to give you input when they think there's something that they have to tell you that's of use, and I want you to listen to them. So I give you permission to get information from other people and to use that in the decisions that you make about caring for my child. You know, it seems it takes a village, and it's uh, mm-hmm. so so many people involved in the community of caregivers. I thank you for that valuable information. We're going to pause for another quick event message and then come back and talk a little bit more about ensuring financial care for future centers around and um, protecting your eligibility for government benefits, so government benefits and financial care. All right, I want to tell you quickly about an offer from – it's a combination offer from the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and Chicago Lawyer Magazine. There's a new super low price, you can find information at lawbulletin.com forward slash combo. For a limited time, the Law Bulletin Publishing Company is offering a special one-year subscription rate of $159. That's 43% off the normal subscription rate. Plus, if you act now, you'll receive a free one-year subscription to the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, which is a $60 value in itself. So subscribe to Chicago Daily Law Bulletin by April 30th, 2012, and you'll also receive Chicago Lawyer for 2012, and you'll save $180. Now, in addition to coverage from around the Daily Center, Federal Courthouse, and Illinois Supreme Court, the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin includes profiles of corporate counsel, lobbyists, legislators, and judges. Secondly, case summaries and analyses, including Steve Gar- Gar- Garmis, Garmis's, I'm sorry about that, Steve Garmis's trial notebook. Third, sports law stories. Fourth, transactional law stories from non-litigators. Fifth, daily insights and trends, including comings and goings within the legal community. Sixth, comprehensive Collar County court coverage with the recent additions of Will and Kane Counties, and seventh and finally, more stories and photos from around the Collar Counties. So again, a whole host of information for attorneys practicing in Chicago. Again, it's lawbulletin.com forward slash combo to take advantage of this special offer that, again, uh, expires uh, at the end of this month, April 30th, 2012. Now back to our program with Pamela Parker talking about legal planning for special needs children. We talked in our first segment about a comprehensive plan to take care of the child and future needs. We talked in our second program segment about creating a community of caregivers providing security for the child. And now in our third segment, we'll talk about ensuring financial care in the future and eligibility for government benefits. Pamela? Okay. This is a really big one. For most people, not everyone, but for most people, The eligibility for Medicaid and SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, is really the cornerstone of a financial plan for them to be able to survive in the future. Medicaid is essential for most people because it provides not just health care. It's more than the equivalent of health insurance, although it does provide for that. It also provides um, services related to living with a disability that you can't. So Medicaid and, and SSI are available to people with um, a with a disability that meets the definitions in the in the um, Social Security Code. And it's also need based. 
and here's the real catch. Here's where all this other financial planning flows from. SSI and Medicaid are for people of low income and low means, meaning very low assets. And what this means is that in most cases, and some of the particulars vary from state to state, so this is kind of general information. It's all basically the same everywhere in the country, but the details may vary. But basically, if you have about $2,000 in assets, meaning money in the bank or property worth $2,000 or more, you are generally not going to be eligible for Medicaid or SSI. Similarly, if you make a certain level of income, you are not going to be eligible for Medicaid or SSI. So in order to qualify, you have to pretty much have nothing and make not enough to live on. That's really kind of what it comes down to. So parents have found themselves in this difficult position where they needed their child to be eligible for these services because funding, you know, if your child needs to live in a group home or needs to have home, a home aid to help them um, with their activities of daily living, that's very expensive to do on an ongoing rest-of-your-life basis, and most families can't afford to do that for very long. So the parents needed their children to be eligible for Medicaid, but if they leave money to their child or give money to their child, then they won't be eligible for it. So they're in this position where a parent may, you know, of modest but decent means may have a pretty good inheritance that they can leave for their child, but if they leave it for their child, then they no longer have the government benefits that they so desperately need. So we do have a legal way to provide money, and it's unfortunately kind of burdensome, uh, more so than I think it needs to be policy-wise, but it is available, and it allows parents to save money and provide money through inheritances or through life insurance benefits to their children with disabilities without knocking them out of eligibility for Medicaid and SSI. And it's called a special needs trust, sometimes called a supplemental needs trust. And, and what it is is a trust, which is a legal entity on its own, with your child with a disability as the beneficiary and a trustee who has complete and total discretion whether or not to spend money on your child. The only thing that they cannot spend it on is something that would be covered by the government benefits. So the basic food, shelter, clothing that SSI is designed to cover would not be able to be spent by this trust, and nothing can be required to be spent by this trust. So if you meet those sort of, and I'm, and I'm saying this very broadly and kind of very generally, but that's, that's basically what it is. If your trust meets that standard, then Social Security Administration will not consider it to be an asset of the child. So the child still has nothing because they can't compel any of that money to be spent on them, and therefore they're still eligible for Medicaid and SSI. But this pot of money in the trust is available to supplement the quality of life that your child has from the from the basic SSI and Medicaid. So a special needs trust can have money that the parents have provided, can have 
um, money that the parents leave when they die, can have money through life insurance benefits, can have money that grandparents donate. Anybody can donate money to this trust. Parents or grandparents are basically the only ones that can set it up. But once it's in existence, anybody can contribute to this trust. And a trustee is designated to manage it and to make decisions about spending the money. And so it can be spent on pretty much anything that SSI is not designed to cover. So it can it can send a child to school, it can send a child to classes, it can send a child on vacation trips, it can buy internet access, it can buy books and toys and um, you know collect collectibles that the child wants. It can provide a the kind of quality of life that your child is used to or that you would like your child to have based on whatever money you are able to provide without losing their eligibility for Medicaid, which is generally what's going to enable them to continue to live in whatever setting they're in with whatever assistance they need. And your money doesn't have to be depleted on those basics. It can give your child a good quality of life. So it's really a great tool to have for your child. Um, it can be set up, and again, some of it is state-specific, so they vary a little bit in the technical details of how they are drafted. But every state, um, I believe, allows these to be used in addition to the eligibility for it. But you have to have an attorney to draft it because it's very technical and it does vary from state to state. So you have to have an attorney that actually has some experience with special needs trusts to do this because if Social Security Administration looks at your trust, and they will, says it doesn't meet the qualifications, then it won't work to protect your child's eligibility for the benefits. So it's a great tool, but it's also very, very technical and, and must be done very carefully when you set these up. We do these trusts in conjunction with a will for the parents um, and any other person that might want to leave money for your child. Grandparents oftentimes want to leave money to a, to a grandchild with disabilities. Um, in later years, you may have siblings of that child that want to leave money to them. So anyone that might want to leave money to your child with a disability should also have a will that directs whatever it is that they want to leave for this child into the trust. If a child who is receiving Medicaid or SSI gets an inheritance, that becomes an asset and knocks them out of eligibility for their benefits. And there are some ways to restore it sometimes. There are some ways to, um, to fix the problem, but they're costly. And they sometimes can really destroy whatever arrangement the child has. There are some Medicaid programs where if the child loses eligibility even for a short period of time, they may not be able to get back into that program without going on a waiting list. So it's really important to have this trust set up prior to the child potentially receiving any money through life insurance or inheritances. And we do the, so we do the wills for the parents in particular when this trust is set up that sends all the money that they want to leave to their child into that trust and we encourage them to talk to other family members about also leaving any money that the child might that they might want to leave to the child to that trust and it's a great great tool 
but it doesn't work if you don't do it. So parents really need to get in the earlier the better to set these things up because if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, <laughs> your child's only three years old, but you get hit by a bus tomorrow, you, you, you're, you've you're both, a you're both You're all under the bus at that point. So. Right, yeah. yeah. And Very you're wasting true. money. You're wasting the money that could be going to take care of your child by, you know, the legal wrangling over how to fix the problem by not having had the will in the first place. Right. And it, it, it really can happen. We had a woman here in Houston, um, and this is such a this is such a good example of why it's important to do this. We had a woman in Houston a few years ago that had a, a large and very loving family. It was just a great family, the kind of family that, you know, circles the wagons and takes care of its own. Everybody gets together, and when the family member needs help, they take care of them. And she wound up, um, for various reasons, um, taking raising one of her grandchildren who had a developmental disability. And he lived with her into, I think he was in his 30s when she finally passed away. And so all of her other children were grown and gone. And she had been his raised him, you know, since he was little. And all of the family pretty much participated in taking care of him. And when she died, she had a modest but, you know, a decent-sized estate. She had enough money to take care of him, and there were other family members that she'd also been helping out. And so when she died, she had this family around her, and she had talked to her older children about, you know, how to take care of the grandson and what she wanted done with her money and what other family members she wanted to take care of, and they were very trustworthy. She had the community of caregivers in place. She had the financing because she had a nice-sized estate that could do all the things that she wanted done. She left all of these things in place that we've been talking about. The one thing that she did not leave was a will, and what happened was under Texas law at that time when she died, this grandson with a disability was her legal heir, her only legal heir. So her whole estate was designated to go to him. And at first, you know, at first glance, that seems like that's not a problem. She wanted to take care of him. But she also wanted to do these other things. And so since there was no will, the family had not gone to court right away, you know, to, to deal with her estate. Before they went to court... The, one of the sons was managing her money and was continuing to do what she'd been doing with it. He was caring for a couple of other family members, and he was, you know, continuing a very nice, you know, living arrangement for the grandson. You know, nobody ever said that the grandson wasn't well cared for. But when the court got involved, as they had to, to, do, to transfer the estate assets, the court said, he's her only heir, and he's disabled. He doesn't have the capacity to to say that this money can go to anywhere else, and he doesn't have a legal guardian. And so what the court did is says, I'm not going to appoint any of the family members as legal guardian because they have been mismanaging this, this individual's money. Mm-hmm. It's his money, and they've been spending it elsewhere. So they're not appropriate to be guardians. We're going to appoint somebody else, some unknown court-appointed guardian, and all the money has to be spent on him. And so the family wound up in court, and this woman's wishes were not carried out. And yes. nobody was really at fault except for the fact that she didn't have a will. What she wanted needed to have been properly, legally set up and right. didn't do that. Uh. So it's really, you know, sometimes the problems that arise can kind of hit you from the side unexpectedly, but but it's really, really critical that no matter how much you trust your family around you, you have to set it up 
the right way, the way that the law requires you to do it to make sure that it actually happens the way that you want it done. Exactly. So many issues to deal with. I'm so glad that you have uh, giving us this time. We have about 10 minutes left uh, to round out our, our final segment. I want to quick tell our audience, though, first a message a little bit about our uh, consulting program here at ProServe PR Marketing. Well, I want to let you know that from solo practitioners to large law firm managers, we receive invitations to present lunch and learning workshops for the benefit of transactional and litigation attorneys who want to learn more about how to use digital media in public relations and marketing opportunities to leverage their achievements and contributions and to further their career and engage new clients and referrals. Call us today to learn more at 312-505-2604. The telephone number again is 312-505-2604. I also want to quickly remind our listeners to please share our broadcast links in your social networks. Many people do find our shows on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages, and we thank you all for your support in sharing our programming. All right, now for our final segment, we're going to talk a little bit about how parents can prepare for continuity of caring for their child. Pamela? I would, um, let's see. We have about five minutes, so let's. Okay, all right. Instead of that, let me say real quickly, what that actually refers to is you need to leave information for about your philosophy, about, you know, what what kinds of things your child likes to do, what kinds of doctors they have, what your philosophy on medical care is, what your philosophy on living arrangements is, things to help guide people in the future on the things that are important to you. And that's very important, but I think with the couple of minutes that we have left, if you don't mind, I'd like to address divorce. Yes, go ahead. Because <laughs> this is something that a lot of people don't think about, they don't know to think about. We were just talking about the fact that in order to be eligible for Medicaid and SSI, you have to basically be have very low means. Child support for children of divorce can, in many states, be continued past the age of 18 and past their time in school if the child has a disability. It's not true in all states, but in some states it is. In Texas, the, the uh, right to child support can continue throughout their lifetime for a disabled child. However, you have to state that in the child support order, first of all, if the child support is going to continue. And then you also need to think about whether that child support is going to affect their eligibility for Medicaid and SSI because once the child turns 18, the child support is considered income of the individual. You can still have child support for the child and preserve their right to Medicaid and SSI if you set it up so that the child support order specifically talks about it being support going to the special needs trust. So again, if you have a special needs trust set up, you have to have it stated appropriately in the child support order, and that's going to vary from state to state. But if you have a special needs trust and your child support order states it the correct way for your state, you can continue child support, have it directed into that trust, and continue having support given to that child, but you have to have it in that order, and you generally have to do it, you know, before the child support order ends. So either when you're first setting it up or modify it before it's supposed to end, and and um, that's something that you need to go talk. If you are a person of a divorce, a divorced individual, you need to go talk to your attorney about that before the child support order ends and see if that is possible in your state, because it is in a lot of states. 
child support orders are uh, certainly important. I, it always surprises me how many people uh, are going to go pay support directly. Not not always a good plan, but um, yeah. <laughs> you know. And the, another thing to point out here too is that oftentimes. I, I'm sure that there is a correlation between the amount of divorces and uh, caring with special needs children. It's a, you know, it's a real strain on on the family. I mean, it can be very difficult. Um, what are there? Some, are there some good support groups or, um, you know, to deal with the mental health issues? Oh, it's uh, it, it is incredibly incredibly stressful to to raise a child with a disability. Even if you love, you know, everything about it, it's very stressful because you've got children that oftentimes require so much attention, so much time, and sometimes with very, very difficult behaviors. And this is going to go on, you know, 24-7 for their whole life, and it is very stressful. Respite is a critical need for families, and there's not enough of it. And the thing that I would tell families, if you have, if you have one resource, that you can spend your time trying to find the one that's best going to benefit you is respite. You know, there's always another doctor or another therapist you can find, but there's only so much of that that's really, you know, useful. The thing that's going to be useful to you past a certain point is respite. Talk to, talk to um, the the talk to the schools. Talk to your churches. A lot of churches provide those programs. Talk to um, the the organization that is specific to your child's disability and see if they have support, you know, United Cerebral Palsy, the autism groups, um, find a group about your child's disability, see if they have respite. Um, that's, that's really the thing that parents can do to most help their family if they're not getting it um, already, respite. Sometimes Medicaid pays for it. You know, there are different sources. There's not enough, and that's also something parents sometimes don't think to ask for, and it makes a huge difference a huge difference in the quality of everybody's life in the family if they get support. So I really encourage them to reach out to any kind of information source. Talk to other parents. Other parents with kids with disabilities are the best source of information, frankly. Um, and now online you can look up those kinds of things pretty easily. Um, find find support groups in your community. Most of them have something and and use it. Talk to parents. Talk to, you know, the nurse at your doctor's office. Talk to uh, some of the doctor's office of social workers. Talk to these people. Say things to them about what is going on in your life because that's where you're going to find um, resources that, that you don't know about. And they won't tell you unless they know what's going on in your life. So it's really important to be open and talking to people. Right. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all this great information with us, Pamela. How is it, what's a good way for people to get in touch with you if they have more questions? Um, my website is parkercouncil.com. Uh, my email is good, pparker at parkercouncil.com. You can call me at 512-804-9934. I represent people all over the state of Texas, not just in Austin. And while I don't practice law outside of Texas, I can probably find referral sources for people that are not in Texas that might be looking for some help. And uh, I'm perfectly happy to, to chat with anyone that's got questions about these issues. Wonderful. I thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for being our guest. Absolutely. It's been it's been fun.
All right. I'd also like to thank all of our audience listeners out there for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe PR Marketing and with support from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies, the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests the tips, tools, and news they can used to be better informed practitioners and consumers. With guests and listeners located from coast to coast, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and I thank you for your time.